HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill Ya, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me today is the excellent Tom Philpot. Tom is, I'm one of Tom's biggest admirers, although he doesn't know that until just this very minute. Tom is a food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones and the co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Crucis, North Carolina. And for five years, this is where I first came across Tom, uh, Philpot was the uh, Tom Philpot served as the columnist, food editor, and senior food writer for the online environmental site Grist. His work on food politics has appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, Orion, On Earth, Gastronomica, and The Guardian. And he has been interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And now you've been interview- interviewed by me on Heritage Radio Network. Tom, doesn't that make you feel good? <laughs> it makes me feel very excited. I have to say, glad, glad, glad to be here. <laughs> Um, I also want to go on because your bio is so great. Before you moved to the farm in 2004, you worked as a financial journalist in Mexico City and in New York, most recently writing daily dispatches on the stock market as the equity research editor for Reuters. Maverick Farms has been featured in Gourmet in the New York Times. And in September 2008, Food and Wine named Philpot, one of 10 innovators who will continue to shape the culinary consciousness of our country for the next 30 years. Dude, you are on fire. It's just amazing. I'm, I'm so I'm so grateful that you agreed to join me today on my humble show. I am, like I said, just very happy to be here. <laughs> Do you, had you been, are you aware of Heritage Radio Network? I mean, it's not like everybody I call and ask for an interview has actually ever listened to any of the broadcasts on this radio station. Had you, well, were you really, familiar with that? I had heard really good, really good things about it. Um, and I was imagining it based somewhere out of the Midwest. And I'm um, very excited to hear that you're based in Bushwood, Brooklyn. I mean, I'm a, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Brooklyn. So 
not only are we based in Bushwick, but we're in the back of one of the most popular restaurants in New York, Roberta's by name, uh, at 261 Moore Street. For those of you who'd like to come and sample the fare here, it's really, the food is excellent. And um, our station is built into two shipping containers in the backyard of Roberta's. It's a pretty cool setup. So wow, that... I need to come visit you next time I'm in New York. Yeah, I was going to say. I've that- never eaten at Roberta's, and I've always... Uh- I've heard uh, so many amazing things about it. So yeah, it's well worth the trip. It really is. And the guys who own this on this restaurant are, are just could not be better people. It's kind of like the harmonic convergence um, all over again. Right here is one of the major meridians with just like good people, good energy, good food, good stuff. So um, let's jump right into what you've been doing for Mother Jones. You've written a few blogs. I mean, you write a lot of blogs. You also write some great recipes, by the way. As a former professional cook, I was I've been reading them with quite quite a bit of an enjoyment. Um, but you been writing about commodity farming and i don't think that commodity farming really gets a lot of um media play as it were in terms of like sort of deconstructing it and so you've uh, just in the last few weeks published a couple of blogs about commodity farming and how it isn't really all it's cracked up to be so why don't you give us the backstory on that and you know first of all why you wanted to write these blogs um almost i wouldn't say in defense of but sort of in explication of what was the motivation yeah. there well, I mean, I think like a lot of people who think about farming nowadays, and I, I kind of came into it the same way, you know, you think about the farmers you meet at the farmer's market. Mm-hmm. And that's, that, that's the exposure, if we have any exposure at all um, nowadays, we think of the folks we meet at the farmer's market. Right. And, they, you know, they tend to be the, you know, the farmer operator is, is out there at the market usually, and um, they've got some kind of, you know, more or less human-scale operation and they're growing food for direct human consumption, tomatoes and, That's right. you know, they're vegetables and things like that. Right. Um, and, you know, what it turns out is um, that, that that kind of farming, and I actually engaged in it myself, um, Maverick Farms, a farm like that in um, North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, it, it ends up being a, um, a pretty tiny, uh, you know, a pretty tiny part of farming in the United States, and it yeah. occupies a tiny, relatively speaking, amount of the farmland that we have in the United States, and it still provides a relatively small amount of the food that we eat. Uh, so most of the food that we eat, um, and most of the food that you see if you walk into a typical grocery store, is uh, from, coming from very different kinds of farms. These are um, you know, very large, uh, you know, farm to specialize in one or two crops or maybe specialize in a single kind of livestock, let's say, you know, chicken for meat production. Right. And, and I think when we think about these kinds of farmers, I think in the sustainable food movement, they often tend to be vilified um, and kind of held responsible for a lot of the environmental problems that this kind of, that these kinds of large-scale operations do cause. Yep. Um, and there's also this idea that well, you know, if you have a 10,000-acre corn farm in Iowa, then you must be making lots of money. It's all these government subsidies coming in, and then you're, you're getting all this money for your corn. And there's this idea that it's this sort of, you know, rich man's business. And then the other thing about it is that I think there's also a lot of loose talk, I think, about, you know, corporate farming. And what does that mean? Um, and you get things like, well, there's farmers. There's the you know the woman at the farmers market with her great tomatoes on one side, and there's corporate farming on the other. Right. 
And one of the things I go, I think in the first blog post you mentioned, I talk about the way that it's, it's pretty much of a misconception um, that, that corporations actually farm. And it, what it turns out is, is that farming um, on any scale is such a risky and low-margin business yeah. that no corporation answering the shareholders uh, would actually do it. I mean, there are a couple of exceptions that we can get into, but almost all of these large operations, even the, the large sort of factory-scale chicken operations or hog operations, tend to be owned by individual families. So you're talking or, about you know, contracting. They're contract farmers, essentially. Right. Yes, and so they're they're, they're contract farmers in uh, in the meat industry. These mm-hmm. these, uh, these are working under con- these people are working under contract to these big, you know, industrial uh, meat processors. Right. Um, but so what I wanted to get to get at in this piece is that you know, even if you let's you know let's step aside from meat for a second and think about. Uh, corn and soy right. farmers. Our big commodity crops, were, right. And you know, these, are, these are the crops that basically are the backbone of our food system. Yep. They provide almost all the animal feed. They provide a huge portion of the sweetener in terms of high fructose corn syrup. Yep. They provide cooking oil, soil, you know, their soy oil and corn oil are massive. All different kinds of ingredients, things like lecithin, um, you know, corn, gluten. These are in a lot of... Products. Oh, it's unbelievable. Our grocery shelves are suffused with these things. Sure. And um, in the past five years, or let's say more like seven or eight years now, there's been this huge run-up in the price for these these commodities. That's um, right. And mainly because of corn ethanol. Yep. And so you think that these farmers are having a windfall. Their, pro- their products are everywhere. They have a huge market. Um, prices are up. But what I get out of my second piece is that the people that own those farms aren't really benefiting that much from the price rise, and they are kind of at the mercy of the companies that sell them the inputs they need to grow food. And by that, I mean things like fertilizer and pesticides. Or just plain and, uh, seeds. And seeds uh, is a huge. Uh, huge expense and a, huge, yeah. a, a great example. And the companies that, that provide those things, they raise their prices when prices go up. And so they eat away at those profit margins. Uh-huh. And then on the other side, you get the, the companies that buy the corn and soy. And these are companies that like Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland. And they, um, they basically dominate these markets, and they're able to hold prices down. And so you get this hard squeeze that these commodity farmers operate in, where they've got their input suppliers on one side and their buyers on the other, and profit margins are always pretty low. Um, input costs are, are always creeping up with price. And um, an agricultural economist at Iowa State uh, recently made the, the uh, kind of stunning remark that the long-term profitability of farming is zero. So you might get cycles where... Uh, the prices for the corn and soy goes up, and you make a little profit. But long term, it's always going to be zero because the input costs are always going to go up, and there will be times when your input costs are literally higher than what you're making in the marketplace, and so your profit goes to zero or negative. Or negative, right? And that's really where uh, government subsidies uh, step in. Uh-huh. And you know, in in one sense, without them. 
who would ever farm? Who would ever, who would ever go into a business where you can, I can tell you before you go into it, look, you're long, you're never going to make a net profit. Every, every year that you make a profit, there's going to be a year that negates that. Yeah, right. I mean, no one would ever in their right mind do this unless they really, uh, you know, have a masochistic streak a mile wide. Right. I mean, you know, everybody wants to get something for their work, no matter how much they love it. Right. Exactly. And this, you know, we're not talking about, you know, um, artists in Bushwick, Brooklyn, who mm-hmm. love their work and will, you know, will scrap by in order to produce their art. I mean, these guys are, are buying huge, multi-hundred-thousand-dollar machines to harvest their goods and, you know, paying off a note on it. And, you know, these yep. guys are businessmen. Yep. But... You know, they are modern businessmen, but they, the truth is, whether they realize it or not, they, have, they operate in a very, very bad business and is completely reliant on the government to keep it going. I, I think that is just fascinating. I mean, I, I hardly even know where to begin with that, just because not only is it the government going, but you have also the business of, um, and here's where I think... Uh, I mean, at least I cannot factor this into the whole equation is the business of export, because um, it's also worth remembering that the agricultural sector provides, I think, 6% of our GDP, or maybe that's just the meat sector. But in any case, it's a a fairly significant portion of our GDP. And a lot of that um, is exported. A lot of our yeah. crops are exported. A lot of our livestock is exported. And so then you, you run into the problem of, like, what will the market bear outside of the United States and, and competition globally with other countries like right. Australia, South America, et cetera, for these various commodity crops, whether it's cattle, pigs, and chicken, or whether it's corn, soy, and rice. And it's, you know, how you make that um, calculation about uh, whether or not this is something you even want to do as an adult and then you and then you go ahead go ahead because you know, that's an excellent excellent point and one thing that um that people that you know sort of government policymakers were saying in the 70s in the 1970s so before the 1970s there was this idea that government policy existed in agricultural markets but there weren't really subsidies what the government was doing was kind of helping farmers figure out how much to grow so prices would stay relatively stable. Right. And um, if you got relatively stable prices and you can make decisions better and you don't have these, um, you know, times when uh, the price of corn, say, drops to this level where you're getting ruined. Right, right. But nor do you, nor do you have these times when the price of corn rises so high that people are going hungry, which has happened in the past four or five years. The government was maintaining this Depression-era New Deal, what they call supply management program, and they essentially killed it uh, in the seventies. Uh, slow death that lasted until the nineties, and the the uh, the promise was, you know, don't worry about supply management, don't worry about overproduction, because we are going to conquer all of these foreign markets, and right. we're going to be selling your corn and soy eventually to China, to Russia, to Europe. Um, to the developing world, you know, we're the, the low-cost producer of corn and soy, so we will be getting your corn and soy into all these foreign markets, and that means the price is going to go up, you're going to get paid for, you're going to get compensated well for what you're doing. And that was this glittering promise, and there's this massive build-up in the Midwest in the 70s, people, you know, buying more land, investing in bigger machinery, 
And, of course, that led to the complete collapse in the 80s of the the farm crisis, the debt crisis, built on this boom idea uh, of the 70s. And, you know, it was awful. Many suicide suicide rates spiked, and who would have lost their shirts in the 80s? And, um, well, that's what when Farmaid was, came around, right? That's when Willie Nelson got the, right? Yeah, exactly. That that's Far- it's exactly when yeah. Farmaid started, and yeah. it continues to this day because mm-hmm. it's kind of like this eternal crisis. But what happened and what made that turn out to be a false promise was they did, in fact, open up all these markets, and exports did boom. But at the same time, the um, you know basically South America and mainly Brazil, but a little bit uh, also Argentina, just completely opened up their land to corn, uh, especially soy production. Yep. You, so you had this monstrous, uh, unbelievable expansion of corn and soy in Brazil, starting in the eighties and continuing to this day. Yep. That um, basically swamped the world market and. Um, and just gave, you know, just put, you know, farmers in the United States in direct competition with farmers in Brazil. And in Brazil, they have so much land. And I'm not even talking about rainforest, which is another topic. And rainforest land did go into the plow for this. But there's this thing called that, the savanna, the Brazilian yep. savanna. It's this massive area, almost as big as the United States in, in land mass. Uh, incredibly biodiverse region. Um, Lots of indigenous people have lived there for a long time, and it was considered to be a bad land and not not suitable for agriculture. And then around in the 70s or 80s, they realized that if they add a couple of soil amendments, then they can make it into good agricultural land. So this, this is land that had been sitting there forever, right? not, not put into organized agriculture. Um, and... Uh, you know, in the past 20 years, it is just getting completely engulfed by, by corn and soy. And so, and there's, you know, there's plenty more of it to be engulfed. And so, you know, long term, U.S. farmers are, are looking at this competition with Brazil and Argentina that, um, that, you know, basically is gonna, is gonna be there forever and keep prices down. If you're an agribusiness company, if you're selling the, that the soil amendments and fertilizers and GMO seeds and things like that, this is great news. But yeah. If you're a farmer, it's, uh, you know, it's just more competition. Right, right. We have to take a short break, Tom, but um, stay with us and audience, stay tuned. We'll be right back with Tom Philpot from Mother Jones talking about commodity farming. And um, yeah, just stay tuned. We'll be right back. Every August for the past 10 years, Heritage Foods USA has had the great honor of announcing the arrival of a new generation of Good Shepherd Ranch Heritage turkeys and a new chapter in the history of an endangered species. You have to eat them to save them. While many farmers now use the term, Frank Reese and his team raised the truest example of the original Heritage Turkey. According to the USDA, they remain the only farm allowed to use the name Heritage on their label. We hope you reserve your healthy, naturally mating, flying, standard bronze, bourbon red, white holland, slate, black, or narragansett turkey today. Let's do it again and support the brightest hope for the turkey. We guarantee these are the best tasting turkeys ever or your money back. Prices start at $75. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You. 
Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the phone with me today is uh, the veteran journalist, Tom Philpott. Um, he is writing for Mother Jones these days and wrote a couple of really interesting blogs, which I urge people to take a look at for themselves, um, complete with charts and graphs about why commodity farming isn't all it's cracked up to be. But we were engaged just now, Tom, in a really uh, fascinating discussion about how the expansion of uh, soy and corn production in South America has had an impact on our own farming and the sort of the promise that we that farmers were offered in the 70s uh, about expanding into global markets and how that's played out. And then I, I want to bring up the point that um, that the ethanol program was probably in large part uh, meant to, like the fact that they were using corn and soy for that was lar- in large part meant to sort of prop those prices up. Am I wrong in that assessment? That's exactly right. Um, and when, you know, when that went online, and, you know, it, 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 there's been an ethanol program in the United States since the 19, since the late 1970s. Uh-huh. And, and it was, you know, it was a, it was a pretty good, pretty good little government, uh, subsidy, um, that, that went on forever and ever. And, but it, it was working at a very low level. I mean, it was like this sort of steady market for ethanol, but it never got past a certain level. And then in the 2005, 2006, 2007 era, um, when gas, uh, gas prices were spiking, um, people were getting concerned about climate change a little bit. <laughs> a little bit, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the Bush administration was under some pressure because they were so tied to the oil and gas industry. Right. And they were refusing to do anything about climate change. I think all, all those things com- converged to get Bush really excited about corn ethanol. Right, and so in 2006 and seven, and this, the seven one that is the one that's still around today, they created this energy policy that took um, basically guaranteed that more that they mandated more and more and more corn every year to go into ethanol production, and now it's up to uh, something like forty percent of the corn crop is going into ethanol production, and you're talking about from you know ten percent um, when when the program started, so it's just massive, right? And that's uh, had a exactly huge impact right. on livestock because anybody who runs a feedlot or or uh, produces hogs or chickens, that's what they eat. They eat corn, right? So all so, of a sudden, the livestock producers have this huge competitor yeah. in, uh, <laughs> in in ethanol production, and you know they're they're definitely part of the constituency was and continues to be. Let's put a floor under under corn prices. At this time, when the program went into effect, a bushel of corn was costing around a buck fifty. So you're thinking, let's think about it. It's sixty-six, I believe, sixty-six pounds of corn mm-hmm. is in a bushel, and the price of it was a dollar fifty. And production costs were definitely over. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but they were over two two dollars a bushel. Wow! So farmers are losing fifty cents a bushel on their corn. Right. And, and so it was dirt cheap. And, and the reason why it was dirt cheap was the factors that we're talking about. I mean, just right. overproduction, all these farmers in the game, all these farmers coming into, in, into the game in, in South America. So you get this glut of corn. And the ethanol program, you know, it seemed at the time, not to me, but to a lot of people, seemed like a smart idea. Um, and so it just diverted all this corn in. And I would say many unintended consequences uh, one of which is that Wall Street got wind of this. Wall Street got wind of the idea that the government was going to be pushing all of this corn into ethanol production, and they figured, hey, you know, corn prices are going to rise. And so all of this speculative cash came in. And then 
you know, there's a knock-on effect. When corn goes up, that means people plant more corn and therefore less yep. soy and less wheat. And so those prices go up, too. And so all of the speculative cash went into agricultural commodities and pushed the price beyond any rational level that the ethanol program would have pushed it. And right. So we had, you know, let's the baseline being, let's say, at buck fifty in the um, mid-2000s, early 2000s, we had seven, eight, uh, I think maybe... I it think went we up over nine at one point. Nine, $9 corn at one yeah. point, so a factor of six. Yeah. And um, and what that did was in was a minor convenience for most people in the United States, but because we eat very directly eat very little corn, but in places in the global south where people you know rely on on eating literally eating stuff like grain and rice for their various grains and rice for their sustenance, this this pushed literally I think 150 million people from just scraping by into all-out hunger uh, had a major impact. And, you know, it wasn't just the ethanol program. It was the way that Wall Street manipulated the ethanol program. Yes. And and Europe was doing similar things um, around biodiesel at the time. And so it was just this convergence of these factors plus Wall Street speculation just had this devastating effect. And, of course, you know, when corn is $8, you can imagine farmers are scrambling to get more corn in. Sure. So you get more, you, all this stuff just, you know, increases. And, you know, now we're looking at, um, I think you probably know better than me, but, you know, corn's more like five bucks now. I think yes. it might even go, go below five bucks. So when you're planning for $8 corn and you get $5 corn, you know, you've got, you've got problems. And so we're seeing the, the price dropping, to a level that it's, it's getting very, very near the, the cost of production. So we're about to see, quite possibly, farmers start losing money per bushel again um, for the first time in something like eight years. Amazing. And so what do you think the Farm Bill is going to do for this? Are they going to adjust the floor? Are they going to continue to subsidize? Will they increase crop insurance programs, all of which we pay for, by the way, as taxpayers? Um, right. Well... The well, first what, thing to say is, is, is what farm bill? The, the, yeah, right. What farm bill? <laughs> the farm bill literally expired yesterday, That's and right. um, and there's no, uh, you know, the, the political logjam um, in Congress. It, it's really hard to figure out what's going to happen. But um, both the House and the Senate in the past year have passed versions of, of a farm bill, or at least uh, ag committees in the House, but not the full House and the Senate have. Have uh, have both passed farm bills that are shifting dramatically over to subsidized insurance, uh-huh. where farmers will get. Uh, and this is probably what's going to happen at some point when they figure all this. I mean, the politics are just uh, incredible, and they're all. It's all tied into the food stamp, you know, uh, SNAP program, and it's it's all just a big mess. But um, but I think what we're going to see is a shift over to subsidized crop insurance. Um, where and how that works is that they'll pick a price and they'll say, and I think it's like the last five years of uh, of, of crop prices averaged. Uh-huh. And if the if your um, if the price drops below, you know, more than ten percent below that, then then you get paid. Um, you, you get, then your your crop insurance uh, makes up for the difference. 
And, of course, you know, what this is subsidizing the insurance industry because the insurance industry is selling these policies that they would never sell. Um, <laughs> and they're subsidizing the, um, the farmer's premium for it. And then they're also subsidizing if there's a disaster, the government will come in and help pay, help the insurance industry pay, you know, for all these losses. Right. And so it, it's just, you know, this crazy subsidy system that I think will, that my analysis will just continue this, you know, ridiculous chain where, you know, farmers are barely scraping by, the taxpayers in the hook for huge amounts of money, yeah. and the input suppliers are cleaning up by selling pesticides and fertilizers and things like that. Well, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you, which we almost are out of time, unfortunately, but um, but just to go back to that cost of inputs, which I thought was so interesting when you were talking about how they keep raising the price of inputs. And the whole point of GMO crops, of GM with genetically modified organisms and seeds that were created, was to uh, reduce the reliance on external pesticides, external fertilizers, and so forth. And now it turns out 15 years later, um, that we have just bred super weeds and super bugs. And that's right. There's no, there doesn't seem to be any sort of, <clears throat> shall we say, remedy for that or end in sight or any acknowledgement on the part of these big seed companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, et cetera, to um, modify, further modify the seeds or come up with some way of helping farmers deal with these super weeds that they themselves have created. That's the thing that amazes me is that they're off the hook. Like they have no responsibility for what's been happening in terms of creating these super organisms, whether they're insects or weeds. And the farmers are the ones who, again, have to pay just as like uh, contract workers for Tyson chicken have to pay for the manure remediation while the Tyson takes the chickens and makes the money. I mean, it's just like, I don't get how this has been allowed to happen. Yeah, I mean, it is a a total mess, and you're right. I mean, you you would think that by selling these these failing products that the industry would pay some kind of penalty, but in fact, they're making more money than ever because the increase in pesticide use is the same companies that make the pesticides. and so. They are benefiting from the failure of their products, which is pretty amazing. It is. And, 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 and let's, let's wrap up on this one note, which is that when we look at agri, you know, commodity agriculture overall, and we look at these, you know, these huge, uh, conglomerate companies like Monsanto, Syngenta, or like Cargill, Tyson, Smithfield, et cetera, you know, I see like essentially monopolies here or, you know, yeah. There's no real competition anymore. Every, you know, the, the sector has been divided into four or five different companies that control each sort of aspect, you know, whether it's animal agriculture, whether it's corn and soy, whatever it is. You know, there's only a few companies who've got their hands in that pot and they've managed to force out all the other competition. And yet there is no sort of trust busting legislation at hand. There's nobody's examining this from that point of view. And I, what do you think about that? Why, why do you think that, uh, you know, even farmers are so quiet about this? I think it's an excellent point. And I think that there are farmers that are up in arms, um, especially in those um, spaces that you're mentioning, like in the meat spaces where it's really stark. Right. And, there was legislation in the last farm bill, the 2008 farm bill, that was designed to uh, ramp up oversight of the meat industry specifically. And Obama came in in 2008 uh, with actually a lot of really good ideas. Uh, and the administration held these listening sessions where they brought everyone together. 
We looked at the seed industry, which is uh, incredibly consolidated, and a, a couple of the meat sectors. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of hype and, and hope that maybe something would change, and maybe it would start enforcing antitrust laws. And then it just completely melted away. Right. Um, p- part of it under pressure from uh, House um, uh, people in the House that were just really pro agribusiness, agribusiness lobby. Right. Uh, partly from Obama, just I think just deciding to choose his battles and not and not fight that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that effort in Washington, I am sorry to say, is dead. But there are a lot of there are farmers agitating about it because the situation, especially in something like poultry, you know, chicken production, right. is just so dire. Yeah, I, I completely see it as dire. I mean, I, I, I really, I feel for all of these guys, whether they're, I mean, I think the mom and pop shops, uh, the small upstate farms, I, I think they're the ones who probably end up doing a lot better financially than people who are, say, contract farmers for something like Tyson. I mean, those, yeah, I mean, it's it, to me, it's just tragic that you, you basically kind of give up your liberty as a farmer, which is kind of why you got into the business, presumably in the first place. And, and instead, you're essentially an indentured servant. And it's, it's, a, it's a sad state of affairs for the agricultural community and for us as consumers, because it, it doesn't mean anything good for us either. Um, Tom, I want you to promote sure. yourself, promote, 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 because we have to wrap it up. Um, you've been a great guest. I hope you'll come back. Um, tell people where they can learn more about you and what you do. And um, and give us a little bit of uh, Maverick Farms. Tell us a little bit about that, too, while you're at it. Sure. Well, yeah, you can find me on Mother Jones, motherjones.com. Um, I've got a, a blog on there that's got my name on it. Um, you can find me on Twitter at just at Tom Philpott. Um, Maverick Farms is a great, uh, a great farm in uh, western North Carolina. It's a small project um, that's doing some pretty big things. We've got a – we lead a multi-farm CSA in our area. Uh-huh. And um, the reason why that's so important for us is that we're up, we're way up in the mountains. We're at three thousand feet, and it, because the region is so mountainous, most farms are really small, and two, and a lot of times too small to ha- really have an effective CSA. And what this does is it conglomerates a bunch of small farms instead of each one having its own twenty-member CSA, which isn't very efficient. Right. It conglomerates them into a, a bigger whole, and so that's working really great. Uh, and we have a very strong low-income uh, emphasis. We, you know, we take SNAP benefits, and we work with various groups to get subsidized shares out to people who can't afford a full-price share, which are, there are many in our area. Uh-huh. And then we're also running a farm incubator program. We've taken over a small piece of land from Appalachian State University that w- was their former teaching farm, and we are uh, running a little uh, sort of farm teaching center um, that has also been been very successful. So. Lots going on down there. You're an awesome guy. Listen, Tom, keep up the good work. I'm telling you, people, you should be reading Tom. You should be imprinted on your cerebral cortex at all times of the day. You should be thinking Tom Philpot, Tom Philpot. What's Tom saying now? Um, Thank you again for joining me today. Thanks to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This has been... I'd love to come back sometime. Oh, man, Tom. I'm serious, dude. You're you're coming back. I promise. We we, we didn't even scrape the surface here. Um, So anyway, thanks again. And thanks to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week, folks. That's all for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 